the words on the slide are uh, spelled in, in the British spelling? And should we all sing in a British accent when they're spelled in a British spelling and then with switches to American spelling we could sing in an American accent? But that would leave us lots of options. So anyway, um, goodness. In a moment here, we're going to dismiss children for Children's Church. Who are they following? They're following the Predos. Oh, they're going to, don't, don't go yet, kids, because I got something to say to you. So next weekend is Father's Day, which means you have a whole week to think about what you're going to get your dad or what you're going to do for your dad during Father's Day. And the people in that row over there, you should definitely listen to this message. So... All right, if you are four years old through first grade, you may follow the Predos out the north door. Uh, we are praying for you that the Lord would work mighty things in your life. I've got a lot of monitor behind me here, and I would love to have less. That would be grand. Um, yeah. So you get the distinct privilege of listening to me for the next five weeks if you're going to come. And I thought that that would, it would be good if I would introduce myself. Some of you may not know me. Um, my name is Jim Kluth, and um, I'm married to Tara, who's several rows over into the middle there. We've been married since 1998, and we were married right here in Berean Community Church, Rochester, Minnesota. It wasn't in this building at that time. It was the, the little A-frame on Elton Hills that a lot of us remember, but that some of us don't remember. The Lord's brought plenty of people into this body over the past 15 years. And so you may not remember being in the A-frame at all. While we're talking about history, I also want to acknowledge that Pam Block is in the congregation this morning. Kevin and Pam pastored us here for about 12 years, and we are grateful for their ministry. Um, yeah, we were married at BCC. Um, Tara and I have four children. We have Evan, who is 18 and just finished his freshman year at Liberty University. Um, we have Aiden, who was not able to be here with us this morning, uh, and he is 15 and just finished his freshman year at Schaefer Academy. And we have Toby, who is able to be here this morning. Uh, he's 14, and he just finished his eighth grade year at Schaefer Academy. And then we have a daughter, Avery, who is 12 and just finished her sixth grade year at Schaefer Academy. And if you're noticing a theme of Schaefer Academy there, that's because I'm on the faculty at Schaefer Academy, where I have been for 24 years. And if you want to hear more about Schaefer Academy, you should come talk to me in a different context. All right. So... I started here at Berean Community in the same year. It was 1995, October. Um, I've been an adult Sunday school teacher. I've played on worship team. I've been an elder. I've been director of adult education. I've taught adult Sunday school. Did I do anything else? Oh, I'm on the board of directors for the entire Berean Fellowship. So that sounds really impressive. I actually forget a lot of the time that I am or was any of those things. So, why don't you pray with me? Father, we're here to talk about you. I pray that introducing myself would have the function 
ultimately of pointing to you, that you're the one who gives each one of us life, you're the one who gives us spiritual life, and so as we study your word, we trust that you will share yourself with us, and that we will be encouraged, strengthened, revitalized, and given the hope that exists in your word, because you are the one who wrote it, in Jesus' name, amen. This morning I was thinking about road trips. You know, I've always loved a good road trip where you get 3,000 pounds of trip snacks together and then you get everybody into the van, you start up the van, you merge out onto I-90 because all good road trips start on I-90. And road trips are just so full of possibilities. What will we eat? Where will we stay? What will we get to see? What fascinating people will we meet out there on the road? Um, and what Airbnb did Tara book for us this time? And what kind of little trinkets will we bring back? One time, I was in deep southwestern Minnesota in this little tiny town called Curry. And I saw a minivan for sale right there in the middle of the town, just sitting out there with the sign on it. And I thought, well, that looks like fun. So I got out my cell phone. But remember, this is in the old days. And so you did not get much cell phone reception, especially in southwestern Minnesota. So I climbed. I climbed on top of my minivan as high as I could. I I dialed the thing, and then I held the phone way up here, and I got a connection with the guy, and it was an 82-year-old guy, and he said, I'm over in the next town, but I'll come over and show it to you. I bought that van from him, and I drove it for the next seven years. So stuff happens on road trips. It was fun. Um, And I will admit that I may have some family members whose feet are a little more firmly planted on the ground than mine are, and who wish that my road trips had more of a linear purpose to them and less of a sense that I was on the Lewis and Clark expedition. But nonetheless, road trips are overflowing with possibilities. And the Apostle Paul also liked a good road trip. You may remember that Paul started out as Saul... He was a high-ranking Pharisee, um, this sort of impressive guy that everybody else looked up to, if not physically. And Paul was on a road trip, actually, up towards Damascus. Um, He was in full action of persecuting Christians. And in Acts 9, Jesus confronts him and says, Hey, These Christians that you're persecuting, they're actually my followers, and you're persecuting me, the living Lord of history. And so that changes Paul incredibly, and he's no longer Saul within a few years. Um, He's Paul, and he becomes the greatest promoter of the gospel rather than the greatest persecutor of Christians. And so with his redirected zeal and a new grasp on grace, Saul, soon Paul, sets out on three-plus missionary journeys. And the reason we have to say three-plus is we know he took three, and he was very hopeful of taking a fourth. He wanted to go to Spain. He wanted to preach the gospel in Spain. There's no hard evidence that he actually got there, uh, but he certainly could have. So... Um, three or so missionary journeys. On the second missionary journey, he ended up in Thessalonica. Um, and his time with the Thessalonians 
resulted in the books of First and Second Thessalonians, and that's where we're going this summer. We're going to go on a road trip to ancient Thessalonica, and you may ask why? Why? Why did we choose First and Second Thessalonians? Well, my two big reasons were number one, to my knowledge. We've never preached First and Second Thessalonians from this pulpit in the whole time that I've been here. Um, and number two, those two books have a strong focus on the return of Christ. And it will help every single one of us in our spiritual lives if we remember daily that the return of Christ is imminent and that his return is our inspiration for being the people of God. And so we want to look together at the context of these letters. We want to find out how God brought the Thessalonians to faith in Jesus Christ, and then how Paul encouraged them to live every day as followers of Jesus because they were looking forward to Christ's return. Well, I'd like to start by talking a little bit about Thessalonica itself. And by the way, if you like taking notes, I always put an outline on the back of the bulletin, so you're very welcome to use that. Obviously, there's no obligation to use that, but it's there if you like it. Thessalonica, um, founded around 315 B.C., if you want to connect that somewhere in history, that's right after the life of Alexander the Great. So Alexander the Great lives in the mid-300s BC, um, and this city was actually named after his half-sister, Thessalonica. And the word stuff there is fun. So her dad was naming her, and he'd been this, this great general of Thessaly, and Thessaly had a victory and so he named his daughter Thessaly's Victory, Thessalonica, Nike Shoes, Victory. It's all there. Yep. <clears throat> the more you know, the more you know. Um, so um, was named after her, and she was a half-sister of Alexander the Great. A lot of intermarrying going on back then. The city grew impressively, and by 150 B.C., it had become a recognized city in the Roman Republic, um, it was located on the Via Ignatia, or as you would probably say, the Via Ignatia, because you don't teach Latin all day. Uh, and that is a significant east-west trading route that the Romans put in, and so Thessalonica um, thrived in that environment. It became a major trading hub for Macedonia by the time of the Apostle Paul. And Paul arrived in Thessalonica in the year A.D. 50, about 20 years after Jesus rose from the dead, if you want to place it. Um, and what he did there is recorded for us in Acts chapter 17. So if you wouldn't mind turning to Acts 17, as soon as I say Acts 17, all the Bereans get excited because they realize, oh yeah, Acts 17, 11, that's where we hear about how awesome the Bereans are. But we're actually going to read the part before that this morning. So Acts 17, verses 1 through 9. This is what Paul did when he was in Thessalonica. We'll pick that up in just a second. When they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. 
as his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. But the Jews were jealous. So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace. The Greek there actually says they rounded up some marketplace loungers. Just guys kind of sitting around doing nothing in the marketplace. They rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other brothers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are defying Caesar's decree, saying there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. Okay, so that was Paul's experience in Thessalonica. And what happens is under the cover of night, they slip away to the town of Berea. And that is where Paul preaches to the awesome Bereans. Okay, and then from there, he goes to Athens. And in Athens, he sees the statue to an unknown God. And he says to the, to the Athenians, you got the statue here for the unknown God. I'm going to proclaim to you the unknown God. And then he speaks to them about Christ and how he is uh, the exact representation of the Father's being and the true God that they need to be worshiping. And then they head on to Corinth, and he stays in Corinth for another year and a half. And it's during his time in Corinth that he writes First Thessalonians and Second Thessalonians to help this new baby church that he started in Thessalonica take root and be strong. So, um, quick, quick moment on first and thus, first and second Thessalonians. By the way, Thessalonians is very hard to say. Um, they classify as general epistles, and that means that they're written to everybody. So everybody in the congregation would have been a recipient of first and second Thessalonians, and probably people in the surrounding countryside as well. That's different from the pastoral epistles, where they're written only to Timothy or only to Titus as a spiritual leader in that congregation. Um, and two fun facts about these books. Uh, each chapter of First Thessalonians contains a reference to the return of Jesus Christ. Every single chapter does. And mostly they occur at the ends of the chapters. Uh, and First and Second Thessalonians also do not contain any explicit references to any Old Testament passages. That is probably the case because the people who were converted to Christ there were more so the God-fearing Greeks and possibly even the pagans. And so they just didn't have much background in Old Testament, and Paul chose not to offer a lot of Old Testament quotations in the book. 
So, it's time to dig into First Thessalonians. If you are using an actual physical non-electronic Bible, you'll find it, well, I'll find it, I hope I find it, um, you'll find it kind of towards the middle of the New Testament, which is way towards the end of your Bible. It'll look like that. So, First Thessalonians 1, 1 through 10. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you, mentioning you in our prayers. We continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know brothers loved by God. And by the way, pretty much anywhere, if I read brothers, you can typically read brothers and sisters there because the Greek word adelphoi allows for that. Um, brothers and sisters loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. In spite of severe suffering, you welcomed the message with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Chapter 1. So, the book begins with a greeting. And that's typical of books in the ancient times. When you wrote a letter in the ancient world, you started with your own name, who's writing it, and then you wrote who it's to after that. Um, this one is atypical in a couple of ways. Uh, one is that Paul includes Silas and Timothy in this greeting. Normally, it's, I mean, once in a while it's Paul and somebody, but most of the time it's Paul, right? Paul and Apostle. And that's the other way that it's unusual, is that Paul doesn't identify himself as an apostle in this one. And I think the reason for that is that there was no debate, there was no, like, no conflict or no challenges to his apostleship there. And so, um, he didn't bother stating that he was an apostle. He'd been there like, you know, six, eight, nine months before they knew he was an apostle. Um, verses 2 and 3, Paul gives the first hint of his affection towards the Thessalonian church. And his love for them seems to be connected to their affection and the appreciation that they, he had, sh they had shown for him while he was there. And he thanks God for them in his prayers. And I think that's a great thing because, you know, you can show up on somebody's prayer list in two ways, right? Number one, they're thanking God for you. Or number two, they're asking God to intervene for you. And these guys show up on the prayer list in a positive way. Um, and this passage also shows that Paul prayed regularly for each of his churches. 
that he was deep in prayer. And I wanted to ask you, how about you? Is it one of your delights to go before the Lord in prayer, asking that he would accomplish his will through all of us? Because prayer is one of those practices that can easily be left on the basement shelf of our lives where you pull it out only when you're in deep distress and you're not sure if anything else is going to work. But, you know, the biblical model of praying is much more proactive than that. Um, In the Bible, people pray because they want to see God work, right? They want to see God reveal His glory to people, and they know that He's chosen to do that through their prayers. And if you ever struggle for like what to pray for or how to take action on that, uh, I would offer up the Lord's Prayer as a good model <clears throat> because you, you start out, right? Our Father who art in heaven, and then you kind of expand on that. Our Father who art in heaven, well, that tells me my relationship with God tells me who God is, and it tells me that I'm a beloved child because I can call him Father. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. God, we want your name to be holy. We want your name to be set apart. We want your name to be unique out of every other name in the world. And so you go on through the petitions of the Lord's Prayer, and then you just expand on those. And as you're expanding, you're beginning to pray the Father's heart back to him. So that's a great model if you're looking for a way to pray. And you know, prayer may be a mystery, but it's God's mystery, and God's promised promised to accomplish His will through us as we pray. And then we come to the heart of this message, um, where Paul celebrates the authenticity, the reality, the genuineness of their faith. See, true saving faith is one of those things that you just can't see with your eyes. Like, I can't look at your face and decide if you're saved. I think when I was much younger, I wanted to be able to do that. I wanted to think that people who had eagerness and joy and light and, you know, kind of, kind of a sense of bubbliness about them that, well, those people are saved, but the other people, they're not saved. And you know what? That is simply not the case. That is not how God sets apart those who are and those who are not. However, In the balance of this passage, Paul gives at least four characteristics of people who have truly come to faith in Jesus Christ. So, let's take a look at those. And these, these are on the back of your bulletin. So number one, number one, the saved person is responsive to the gospel. The saved person is responsive to the gospel. The old English word godspell, gospel, just means good news. And it translates the Greek word euangelion, uh, which gets used 41 times in the New Testament. So good news. And by God the Holy Spirit's power, the Thessalonians came to trust in the good message that God sent his one-of-a-kind only begotten, sinless son to dwell on earth with us, die a criminal's death that paid for our sins, and rise again from the dead to prove that he truly is the God-man and Messiah. That is the gospel. 
the gospel of Jesus Christ saved sinners in Macedonia in 50 AD, and it can save you right here in this moment if you will stop trusting in your attempted good works and put your faith squarely on Jesus Christ. And this gospel warms the hearts of believers as we hear it and share it again, and it recalibrates our loves so that we know that we're part of God's story and not some other story. And so as we live in the story, um, we appreciate and we love the gospel all over again. So the saved person, um, the saved person is responsive to the gospel. Number two, number two, the saved person imitates the Lord and his under shepherds. The saved person imitates the Lord and his under shepherds. Paul writes in verse six, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. And you know, one of the very best ways to learn anything is to imitate people who are good at it. So I got to thinking about learning a foreign language, right? You can learn foreign languages out of books, but the best way to learn a foreign language is to speak it with someone who's a native speaker of that language. It just works better. And so... Uh, Imitation is a great way to learn things. Or I thought about children. When children are small, the very first things they do are imitating their parents. And in fact, if you look at children play, the stuff they play with is imitation of the stuff that their parents have. Otherwise, why would you have those little tiny kitchens? Anybody remember the little kitchen with the little light inside that was supposed to bake the little cake? Yeah, those... Um, that's imitation, right? They're learning to do what mom and dad do on a very small scale where they can't burn the house down. So imitation. And Paul is excited that the Thessalonians are imitating him. And through him, they're imitating the Lord Jesus that they see in him. And you know, most of the Thessalonians were probably adults when they came to conversion, so they no doubt had to unlearn some unhealthy patterns for living, and that's why Paul is so excited that they are imitating him in Christ so quickly. So number two, the saved person imitates the Lord. Number three, the saved person radiates God's message. The saved person radiates God's message. In verses 7 and 8, Paul writes, And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. See, they had become Christians. And becoming a Christian is a big deal. In Colossians 1.13, it's like becoming a citizen of a new kingdom. We used to live under the authority of darkness, but now we live in the kingdom of light. In Ephesians 2.1, we get pictured as being dead in transgressions and sins, and even being objects of wrath, but God made us spiritually alive in Christ, which makes us recipients of grace, which makes us no longer objects of wrath. 
right? In 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul said it was like becoming new again. In Christ, we are new creations. The old is gone, the new has come. And in John 3, Jesus said it was like being born again. So however you picture it, whatever picture works for you, the reality is that something deep and transformative happens to you when you become a follower of Jesus Christ. So you are no longer the person that you used to be. You have new life, new hope, and new purpose permeates every aspect of your being. And the Thessalonians were experiencing that, and we, by God's grace, are experiencing that too. And when you live for Jesus, you will stand out from the world. And as people get exposed to you, as they spend time with you, you're going to find that you may get questions. Questions like, why are you so kind? Or, why don't you join in with the rest of us in the office gossip? Now, nobody's going to ask that question directly like that, but they'll ask it in certain ways, right? Or, how can you possibly have the energy to adopt children from foreign countries after your own children have grown up? Or, whoa, you could have kept that $200 overpayment for yourself, but you turned it in. Why are you so honest? And you may get those questions, and those questions may give you an opportunity to start a conversation about Jesus Christ and your relationship and your experience with him. But honestly, in this culture, people are so self-absorbed that I don't even think you're going to get those questions too often, and you're going to need to be awake for opportunities to share your stories of Jesus Christ into the lives of other people, because folks are not asking questions that much nowadays. They are, they are more so waiting for you to say something. And then, two, your faith will be known everywhere. So number three, the saved person radiates God's message. And number four, the saved person turns away from idols. The saved person turns away from idols. Paul writes in verse 9, They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. What are idols? Well, basically, they're anything that competes with God for first place in your life. In the world of the Bible, there were idols everywhere, and they had names. From Molech to Dagon and Baal and Asherah. Now, in our culture, it's not so common that people bow down literally before actual idols. Um, it's more like we elevate other aspects of our life, work, recreation, money, power, success, material possessions, independence, sexuality, family, sports, to an importance that should be reserved for God alone. And pretty much all of us need to repent of some idol or idols that are taking us away from our complete devotion to Christ. Because, you know, if there's going to be a turning from idols, there's going to have to be a turning to something. 
because nobody is a vacuum, right? You will worship something, so let the object of your worship be the true and living God. See, they were able to do all of this and be all of this because of the content of verse 10. Look at verse 10. Paul ends 9. They, they tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. Paul had told them that one day Jesus would return and that all their trials and persecutions would be worth it. And as we'll see later in this book, they didn't understand the return of Christ very well at all. So Paul gives them some priceless instruction. But even before they had this instruction, they were waiting eagerly for Jesus to return as they practiced their new faith. They knew Jesus was worth waiting for because he had risen from the dead himself and he was rescuing them from the coming wrath. Well, how about you? Are you certain that you will be saved from God's righteous judgment of sinners, what Paul calls the coming wrath? Maybe you've never been responsive to the gospel or interested in living a life set apart for Christ. But today, all that is changing. Today, like the Thessalonians, you've seen that Jesus really does love you, and he wants to set you free from a life of slavery to sin. You want your life to radiate the love of God, and you want to be sure that when Jesus returns, he will recognize you as his own. And if that's where you are spiritually, great things are in store for you. You just need to agree with God that you're a sinner, that you haven't loved God with your whole heart, and you haven't loved your neighbor as yourself like he commanded you to. And you need to stop trusting in your own righteousness and ask Jesus for his righteousness. When he died on the cross and rose again from the dead, he made it possible for you to have his righteousness credited to your account. That's the beautiful exchange of the gospel. And so tell God. Tell God you want to be his person. Tell God you want to be his child from now on, and he will save you. It's that simple. Or maybe you've been following Jesus for years and years. In my case, it's been something like 28 years of consciously walking with Jesus Christ. So I ask you, Christian brother or sister, is your heart still moved by the saving message of the gospel? Are you imitating the Lord and the spiritual leaders that he's put in your life? Are you radiating the life of Jesus to the people around you? Are you choosing to resist idols in the power of the Holy Spirit? And finally, are you eager for the day when Jesus will one day return to this earth in great power and great glory and make all things new? I want you to take some time and ask yourself those questions. Use them to purify your heart and strengthen your bond with him. Let's pray together and then we'll invite the worship team to come back up.
Father, we're grateful that you've given us your word and that your word will guide us into all truth. So we thank you for the opportunity this morning to consider uh, just what it means to have a true and a credible conversion, um, that we would love your gospel, that we would love the great story that you're telling, the story of how you sent your son to be the savior of any person who would put their faith in him and how you are making us new from the inside out. So thank you for the opportunity, Jesus, to live a life set apart for you. Um, Help us to desire you. Help us to turn away from idols and help us to live lives of worship, not only on Sunday, but on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and all the other days of the week. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.